Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, editor of the Lancet Psychiatry, and today a rare gap between general elections here in the UK gives us an opportunity to talk about mental health research and policy with a publicly funded research professional. So I'm joined over the line by Scott White of the University of Sheffield to talk about his paper, Variation in Compulsory Psychiatric Inpatient Admission in England, a Cross-Classified Multi-Level Analysis. Hello, Scott. Hello. So, Scott, why are people being put under section of the Mental Health Act in England? I think that's the $64,000 question. I think it's an incredibly important question and really the one that has driven us to do this research, uh, particularly since you know, we live in an era of increasingly patient-centered care where community mental health services you know, provide 24-hour-a-day crisis intervention, which is generally very popular with patients. And so the big question and the one that we've been trying to understand for a number of years is why, at the very same time as, as, as this is going on, why should we be detaining and compulsorily treating more patients than ever? Which isn't to answer your question yet, but I will try and answer it. And I think it has something to do with the nature of the conditions that we're treating, resource levels. I think we can't get away from that fact. I, th I think there are secular processes going on around how we understand and deal with issues of consent. Um, and I, I think it's some, you know, really something that's incredibly complicated because some, it's not as simple a matter as saying less detention would be better. It is, it is complicated. Um, I mean, I know that in my, my view is that some sort of mental health act is necessary. I think that it is unfortunately uh, necessary in some cases to really fulfill uh, one's duty of care uh, towards one's patients. I also think that there is something to be said for admission to uh, mental health units. I don't think that it represents a failure of these other types of treatment, uh, such as community care, which you've been talking about. And so it's really important that we get the research which tells us how to uh, maybe design these laws, implement uh, such laws better. Uh, and this, uh, that, that phrase, it's complicated. Well, this is a, a pretty complex looking paper. I wonder if you can explain to the listener who might also be busy jogging or washing up or, wash, or walking the dog, what exactly it is that you did here. Okay, so what we did essentially was to get hold of all of the clinical records from secondary care, from specialist mental health providers in, in England to look at activity level. And this is the mental health minimum data set uh, which all providers record all activity uh, and we were able at, at the very individual patient level to have information about uh, 1.25 approximately 1.25 million patients and we looked at over the course of just one year we only had one year's worth of data in, in this study we looked at those patients who were admitted compulsorily and we compared them with all of the others in other words people who had voluntary inpatient stays and those who were treated only in the community. So this was a data set that really was all about specialist mental health care. We then using information about where that treatment took place, i.e. we had information about the uh, sort of identity of the provider trust. We also knew in truncated form the patient's postcode, so we knew which part of the country they lived in and we knew which uh, you know, a commissioning service. In those days, PCTs was responsible for commissioning their care. We were able, through those identifiers, to get more information through linkage about some of the characteristics uh, of those trusts and some of the characteristics of the places where people lived. And so what we were really asking was, 
does the rate of compulsory admission vary between different individuals? Does it vary between places where people live? And does it vary between places where people receive care? And we were able to, to model the variation in, 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 rate, in the rate of compulsory admission at all of those levels at the same time using a method called multi-level statistical analysis. Okay, and what you found, um, and I'm quoting from the paper here, is that rates of compulsory admission vary significantly between local areas and services. And you said that this is independent of patient area and service characteristics. Could, could you clarify the, the latter part of that statement? So that's right. So this method allows you to look at what's going on at each of these separate levels when you take account of the other levels in the model. And, and increasingly in the model, what you do is you, you begin by not including, you, you just have the level specify. You don't include any of the explanatory characteristics of people, places, or services. And you can look at, without taking account of, of those characteristics, you can look at what's happening in terms of the overall level of variation that you can attribute to each of those levels. So in this study, for instance, we found that about 85% of the variation, i.e. the difference between being compulsorily admitted and not, was to do with differences between individual patients. But we also found at the very same time that, um, that about you know, the, the remaining 15% was pretty evenly divided in terms of variation between trusts and variation between uh, local areas where people lived. We then in the model made it more sophisticated by using the, the information that we had. And we have to remember that in a data set like this, we are limited to what's there, not what we would like to be there. Uh, we were able to control for some of the characteristics of patients, of areas, and of trusts, and to look at what difference that made. And essentially, the pattern didn't change very much, and the kind of explanatory variables didn't really account for very much of the overall uh, variation in compulsory, compulsory admission. Okay, so on the one hand, we know that areas differ in char characteristics across the country in terms of uh, the makeup of the population, in terms of the socioeconomic uh, sort of milieu which people are living in, and uh, therefore we would expect there to be different rates of the sorts of mental illnesses which would uh, be more likely to, to end up with uh, someone being put under section. So we know that. But um, what you're saying seems to, to be that, that this isn't the only explanation, that there is something else going on. That's what the results would seem to suggest, um, that when we've accounted for things like particularly uh, socioeconomic deprivation, we were also able at, at the kind of area, the geographical level, to look at um, uh, sort of ethnic density, if you like, the sort of uh, proportion of, of, of the population that were of sort of non-white ethnicity. When we include those things, which we do know are related to rates of mental illness, we still found that there were differences between places. So we don't know still why that was, and that's the kind of enigma of this kind of research when you find that you find this variation, which is kind of interesting and noteworthy, but you're not fully able to kind of account for it. Okay, and would you be able to make any informed guesses as to what it might be? Or I mean, it's, there's not likely to be a single thing, of course, but what factors might be involved? I think it's probably easier to think about things that might be going on at the sort of individual patient level and things that might be going on at the service level. 
uh, perhaps more than it is uh, to think about um, you know more of the the kind of local socio-economic or socio-demographic sort of circumstances and I think you know we, we were limited in this data although we found very interesting associations between particularly confirming the association between individual ethnic uh, group and the likelihood of being compulsorily detained we didn't have information on illness severity on diagnosis on sort of past history and numbers of admissions um, uh, so that made that that those, those were individual level factors that I think are likely to be very important and we were very restricted I have to say in the sort of service level variables that we were able to get uh, to get hold of um, the things that might characterize the, the quality of, of, of care that's being delivered or the environment in which people are, are, are being looked after um, in, in hospital wards. And so that so it sounds as if while we can draw some conclusions from these data, there are also many things we, we can conclude and which will bear further investigation. What would you say the priority is? I, I personally, I think the priority is delving deeper into understanding you know, something more about the circumstances in which care is being delivered. I genuinely believe that. And I think when we did work, we did alongside this, we consulted with service users and people who had experience of detention. We also uh, ran a, a small kind of consultative uh, meeting with people who were professionals working in the field. Um, and I do think that the reality of what's happening um, in, in, in the kind of real world in terms of clinical services is terribly important. And as you've said, uh, even the patients themselves uh, didn't say, you know, detention is a bad thing or, you know, that it should never, ever happen again. You know, this is complicated by the fact that people do recognize on both sides of the sort of therapeutic alliance that, um, that care and the right kind of care is terribly important, but there's something about the timing, I think, of when that care is provided. And so patients would say that they know they needed to be detained because if they hadn't been, you know, they might have died, but that if only they'd had the help that they needed when they wanted it earlier, that, um, that it, it, it might have made a difference. And, and it goes alongside other work that we're doing at the moment, evaluating the effects of uh, community treatment orders, which are another form of compulsion that has also been kind of used in much greater rates than, um, than was anticipated. And at a whole other level of controversy with uh, CTOs, of course. Sure, sure. But, um, but some of the same arguments apply, that actually patients and, and carers don't see them as wholly negative. Right, and I think that, that what your paper's addressing really is the issue of um, this thing we have on paper, which is the Mental Health Act uh, of England and Wales, and then the clinical reality of the situation and the sort of uncertainty when those two things meet. Now, I, I know that before the, uh, the last election, um, Theresa May talked about really completely redoing uh, the Mental Health Act. And um, I wonder if you think that your research has any bearing or should have any bearing on any sort of reformulation or rewriting of the Mental Health Act? I'm, I'm sure it will. I'm sure that, I mean, uh, as I understood it, one of the sort of drivers for uh, wanting to change the Mental Health Act was this regulatory, you know, patient level and, and kind of uh, policy level concern about the rates of compulsory treatment. I think that's a sort of driver. I'm not sure that the people that those headline rates fully understand what might be behind them 
and so they may be, uh, and I wasn't at all involved in, in the redrafting of the last uh, time the Mental Health Act was, was, was revised, I wasn't part of that, 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 that at all, so you know, that's a world that I'm not wholly familiar with, but I would say that actually this is probably more about resources than it is about legislation. And I think the challenge is that we also live in a, in a, in a sort of time when, quite rightly, um, our understanding of and our approach to consent has radically and, and finally sort of changed. So if people are unwell, and they are, and, and partly by virtue of their illness or by how severe it is or where they are in the kind of episode of illness, if they are so ill that it is very difficult for them to kind of consent to treatment, it's go they're going to be detained. And I, I think until you provide services, I suspect, that are more preventative, whether that's you know, not necessarily in terms of primary prevention, but in terms of secondary prevention and tertiary prevention, until those services are more effective in preventing relapse, I don't think we're going to get around the problem of, of, of having to detain people. So perhaps one potentially beneficial formulation of a new Mental Health Act would be to take that current bit of the Mental Health Act, which is Section 117, which is really based around the obligations on a mental health service to provide care, and, and really expanding that, that outwards, so that what we look at is a Mental Health Act which, yes, would have provision for um, admission and treatment, but would also really clarify the, the duty of care of uh, the clinician and of the service. I completely agree. So, so clearly there's, there's plenty more to be done on this topic and plenty more to be said. Uh, but alas, we are out of time for today. If you'd like to read Scott's paper, it's online at thelancet.com slash psychiatry, along with the comments by John Rugkasa. But for now, thank you, Scott, for joining us. And thanks to you, the listener, for downloading this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time.